Good morning. What a privilege it is here to be with you and to share the Word of God. We thank the Lord that we have this wonderful book in front of us and we're going to talk about it a bit tonight or today. As you turn to Revelation chapter 2 verses 1 to 7, you might remember we've gone through chapter 1 and the Lord had told John to write down what he had seen, which was chapter 1. Then he said to write down what is, which is the next two chapters, and then write down what will come, and that starts in chapter 4. At the moment, we're at the beginning of chapter 2, we're at the first of the seven churches, so please turn there with me. While you turn there, I want to ask you a question And that is, if you have a job, or if you've ever had a job, what did you think about the reviews you used to get? I know Karen has to give reviews and receive reviews, but I used to hate getting reviews. They seemed to always pick on me and go straight for the jugular because uh, it tended to focus on my mistakes. Do you like people reviewing you, what you're doing, your work, standing behind you, making sure everything's going well? That's what... uh, used to happen in the jobs, what Karen still has to do. Today, we're going to start looking at a reviewer. In the next two chapters, we have performance reviews going on. And these performance reviews are first to the church at Ephesus, and then to Smyrna and to Pergamum, then to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. And they're all going to go through a review. Who is the reviewer? Well, not the pastor, not the elders, none other than the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And we met him in chapter 1, in all his glory. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. It says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, where have you said this? Where have we heard this before? We've seen it in chapter 1, haven't we? John's vision of the risen Lord back in verse 12 of chapter 1. Just flick back there and have a look. This is John as he turned to see the voice that was speaking with me and having turned I saw seven golden lampstands and in the middle of the lampstands I saw the one like the Son of Man. In fact, each of the seven messages to the churches is going to begin with a description or a designation that we've already seen. And what it's doing, what John is doing is pointing out and what the Lord is doing is pointing out that These descriptions, it is me. It is the Lord Jesus Christ that has been revealed to you that is now going to do these reviews. So we know that each church, as it's looked at over the next, uh, whenever we uh, do this in Revelation, will be reviewed by the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, only the head of the church, only the Lord Jesus Christ can accurately inspect each church and know its condition. Why is that? Why is it that the Lord Jesus Christ is the only one that can inspect the condition of a church and of our own hearts? And the reason is because he sees the internals. 
Not only the externals, when we look at a church, maybe we're looking for a new church and we come into the, into the sanctuary, whatever church it may be, we can only look at the outside. We can only see what's happening. But when the Lord gives a review of a church, he sees each of your hearts. Look at the last part of Revelation chapter 2, verse 23. It says, I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. This is important review. In these special messages to the seven churches in Asia Minor, the Lord is giving and will give each assembly an x-ray of its condition. It will look, he will look at our hearts. But I want to point something out to you right from the start. And that is that the Lord intends all churches to read these messages and benefit from them. I want you to note the plural churches in Revelation chapter 2 verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Every church in verse 11, in verse 17 in verse 29, in chapter 3, verse 6, in chapter 3, verse 13, in chapter 3, verse 22. We have that same phrase, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But churches are made up of what? Is our church, new community, this building? Can I see some shaking of the heads? Of course it isn't. Churches are made up of you and me. And so it's individuals, it's you and it's me, who determine the spiritual life of any assembly that we are attending. And so while we read these seven messages, I want to point out, and I will again and again, that we must always apply these messages to us personally as we examine our hearts. He that has an ear, let him hear. Very important that you understand that that is a message for you and I. You see, before Christ judges the world, he must review his own people. Did you know that? If you'd like to turn to 1 Peter 4.17, I want you to look at this with me. But because, as I said, before Christ judges the world, he will review his own people. 1 Peter 4.17 For it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? It is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And so let's have a look at Lord, the Lord's review of Ephesus back in Revelation chapter 2. <coughs> I have a lot to say today, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what Ephesus was. It was a great commercial centre, it was a religious centre. It had the prized status of having the great temple of Diana, which at that time was one of the seven wonders of the world. And Paul spent two years there in Ephesus establishing this church that the Lord is now reviewing. And we know that the letter uh, to the Ephesians <coughs> was sent there. 
And we know that Apollos was pastoring there. We know that Aquila and Priscilla were there. We know that Timothy there was there for a time. We even, uh, tradition says that John lived there in his old age. And so they've had some good pastors over this period of time. Paul planted this church and established it and now 30 years later, after Paul planted the church, the risen Lord is now sending his review. 30 years later. And he writes to the angel of the church of Ephesus, write this. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. It doesn't really matter. The word angel, a lot of people say it's an angel. Others say it's a ministering spirit. Others say that it's a, a person. Others say it's the pastor. It doesn't matter. The word angelos, which is used here, simply means a messenger. And any one of those three can be a messenger, so it doesn't really worry me if you think it's an angel or a person or the pastor. But to me, in this context, it's much more, a much more natural way to receive a letter by a person other than an angel. There's no history in the scriptures of an angel taking messages to a church. But as I said, it's just the word messenger. And so I'm going to put it in there. To the messenger of the church of, the F- of Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance or steadfastness. I'll just stop with those three. The risen Lord had a commendation for this group of Christians. When you're doing a review, if you're happening to do one, it's always good to build up the church first. It's always good to build up the person first and Tell them what a great job they're doing. It's called sandwich psychology. Then you tell them the problems, then you build them up again. Well, this is where we got it from, because the Lord does exactly the same thing. And he gives them a commendation, their deeds, their toil, their steadfastness. So first we look at this church, and they were a serving church. (coughs) They were busy doing the work of the Lord. They, They weren't pew potatoes. They were out there. They were doing. Their weekly schedule was filled with activities. Their, their, their meetings were, were inspiring. They had prayer meetings. They had Bible studies. They had home groups. They had social groups. And the Lord says, I know your deeds. And they're good, says the Lord. Secondly, it was a sacrificing church because the word toil or labour means working to the point of exhaustion. I think we have a few people in our church that work to the point of exhaustion. They're unable to say, no, not this time, and they keep saying yes, but they're, they're doing it for the Lord. The Ephesian Christians paid a price to serve the Lord. I know your toil, says the Lord, and it's good toil. Thirdly, they were a resolute church because the word carries the meaning of steadfast, endurance. They kept going when it was tough. I can't even imagine the trials they must have had in the city purely founded or focused on Diana. And I'm not going to go into all that that means, except to say you might remember that Demetrius had a bit of a problem because his livelihood of building idols was collapsing because Paul was preaching the gospel and he caused a stir. And so it was hard in the city focused on Diana But he says, the Lord says, I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know that you are steadfast. How gracious of the Lord to to begin with words of steadfastness as he walks among this church. But there was more. 
He also commended them because their doctrine was good. It was orthodox. Look at the rest of verse 2. It says, You cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And then just head down to verse 6, where the uh, group is actually uh, noted, where this church discovered were doing the wrong things. Verse 6, Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You know, if you remember back into Acts, as Paul was leaving the church at Ephesus after he had planted it, he warned in Acts 20, verse 28 and onwards, he warned the Ephesian elders, listen, there will be false teachers that will come into your church. They will be from the outside and they will be from the inside. They will even arise from within your own bodies, body of the church. Do you remember that when he was leaving the church and he said, be careful of these? Well, here, 30 years later, the Ephesian believers are still acting upon Paul's warning. They're doing a great job. You put to test those who call themselves apostles and you found them to be liars. Their faith was well defined their faith was well defended. They didn't run to every theological fad that came along. They checked up on what was being taught and they strongly opposed some of the teaching that was being presented. They'd even check up on their speakers, refusing to allow anyone the pulpit who would teach falsely. They tested those who claimed to be apostles, including the Nicolaitans. Now, I'm not going to mention the Nicolaitans a lot except to say that no one knows who they really are, but you can write a book on it if you uh, need to. The Nicolaitans, all it means, the word means to conquer the people. That's uh, the Greek word. The Nicolaitans are mentioned again in Revelation 2.15 in relation to the doctrine of Balaam, so we might have a look at it a bit closer then. But now they're just a group of people, suffice it to say, that all we really need to know about the Nicolaitans is that Jesus hated them. And because Jesus hated them, the Ephesians hated them. Well done, Ephesians. They're doing a great job. I wonder if we hate the false religions as Jesus Christ would hate them. Or do we tend to tolerate false religions? Or do we hate, Jesus says, I hate them. You cannot tolerate evil men... You put to the test those who call themselves apostles. So what do you think is the ground for testing that the Ephesians would have used? How do they test the apostles? How do they know they're false? Well, it's simply whether or not the teaching agrees with the scriptures and with Jesus Christ. As easy as that. And our Lord commends the Ephesians for doing this. You know, today, just over 1,900 years later, we still need that courage. We still need the courage to analyse and have the wisdom to challenge doctrine if necessary. Now, the Lord has set elders in this church to do that. That is one of the roles that he has given elders to do, to take the courage and the wisdom to analyse teaching and to challenge it but truly, it is the responsibility of every Christian. <coughs> May the Lord be able to commend each one of us for putting to, test, to the test those who call themselves apostles 
and they are not. And the Lord continues. This is a great church. He says in verse 3, And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. These are not quitters. They're they're sturdy. They're determined. They're faithfully working. They're enduring for the sake of the Lord. This is a great church. No matter how you examine this congregation from the outside, you have to conclude that this is just about a perfect church. New people walking through the door would be impressed. This is a church that you would settle in if you were looking for a church. They taught the word. They had all the programs and they were doing a great job of sturdiness and steadfastness and checking the word. However, well that word but, the one among the lampstands, the Lord Jesus Christ who can see into hearts, he had a different diagnosis from what ours would be looking at the surface. And he says in verse 4, But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. He looked into their hearts and he said, You've left your first love. This busy, sacrificing, steadfast, enduring, doctrinally correct people had left their first love. What do you think this means? Leaving your first love. What is your first love? Is it the sweetheart sitting next to you? Is it, was that, if you can remember your first love? No, it's not. You know that. The answer is they're very obvious. Our first love is the love we had for Jesus Christ when we first came to know Him. Our first love was that wonderful sense of discovery that He loved us, that He delivered us that he freed us from our sins. Our hearts went out to him in gratitude, in thanksgiving. We had eyes for no one but him. We were floating on cloud nine in the understanding of what our Lord had achieved in our lives. Paul had written to this very church words that I want to bring to you in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 to 7. You might like to turn there. This is what we would have felt like and should have felt like. The joy of Ephesians 2, 1-7. to They already had these words. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. You were all dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. And we walked in them. Verse 3, Among them we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. That's what we were. And then this wonderful verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. 
And he raised us up there with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? That's first love. And under the impact of that first love, we eagerly take on various ministries. Out of our love flows our ministry. It's a delight to serve and to sing and to help and to reach out to others. It seems that it's the least we can do for this wonderful Lord who saved us. That's first love. Everything we do is focused upon him. But you know, gradually there comes an almost undetectable shift of our focus. We get busy, which is not a bad thing, we've seen that. But what happens is that what we do for Christ begins to become more and more important to us than what Christ did for us. What we do for Christ becomes more important than what Christ did for us. And so gradually our position, our status, the longing for approval by others begins to take first place. It begins to become our first love. You can even love doctrine. You can love playing in the band. You can love singing. You can, do, you, you can love serving. But if that's our love, then we're starting to lose our first love, which is who we're doing it for. We go on doing the same thing, but not from the same motive. We drift into the loss of our first love for Christ and start loving the things we do for Christ more than the person we're doing it for. And there are always symptoms or signs of this happening. One of those symptoms or signs is a loss of the joy and glow of a Christian life. Your Christian life soon becomes humdrum and routine. You begin to feel like, I've heard it all before. Even the church service loses its impact. It seems to become mechanical and routine and dull and drab. We really can't wait till the pastor stops talking or we find any excuse to stay away. You're beginning, if not already, lost your first love. A second sign might be that we become more and more important in our own thinking. Instead of what the Lord wants, instead of what pleases the Lord, we begin to think of what will please me. And we lose our first love. Just two signs that we're either lost or beginning to lose our first love. I want you to think of this for a minute. This letter to the Ephesians tells us that it is possible to serve, to sacrifice, to suffer, to teach the correct doctrine for the Lord's sake and yet not love Jesus Christ. It's hard to believe, isn't it? But that's what this scripture is teaching us. It's possible to be one of the best churches in this seven, yet not love the Lord. 
The believers were so busy maintaining their serving and their sacrificing that they were neglecting adoration. And I want to tell you, labour is no substitute for love. Have you left your first love? Does it feel like you might be leaving your first love? If you have, then our Lord will gives three clear, specific steps to take. Remember, repent and return. Verse 5, therefore remember from where you have fallen. The Lord is saying, look at you. Remember from where you, and that is the word singular, that word you, look from where you have fallen. Don't look at the people around you. We have so much of a tendency to look at other people and compare ourselves to them. Look, I'm doing all right. No, (coughs) the Lord says, look at you from where you have fallen. Look at the love you had for me and look at you now. Do you remember what it was like when you came to the Lord first? Remember the joy you had? Remember the closeness you felt to him? Remember the ease with which we were able to pray? Remember the delight you took in meeting with other Christians? Remember the pleasure of reading his word? Remember the pleasure of hearing it and and studying it? (coughs) Remember how you could hardly bear to miss a service because you're learning so much about the truth. Remember that. Look back. Think back. The Lord says we need to be like that again. Can you remember just after you were saved, just go back in your mind's eye where you, when you were first saved? Remember the love you had in your heart for the Lord, for saving us? The Greek imperative for remember in verse 5 is present. It's got a meaning like keep on remembering, hold in memory, from where you have fallen. You had enjoyed a close walk with the Lord. We need to let our mind dwell on that. And that's what our Lord is asking us to do. One version says, remember the height from which you have fallen. I like that a little bit better. Remember the the height you were at with your first love. Remember how high you were and now how you've fallen. Secondly, the Lord says repent. Everyone here knows what repent is. Change your mind about what's taken the place of Jesus Christ in our lives. Turn around 180 degrees. Repentance is not just for non-Christians. Non-Christians have to repent. But it's here, Christians have to repent as well. The Lord's saying, you're faithful in church. You're being diligent. Your doctrine is straight. You have great determination. But our diligence and our doctrine and our determination can be as straight as a gun barrel, but just as empty as a cold gun barrel. Jesus says, you're going in the wrong direction. Repent. You're sliding away. You're getting colder. You're getting colder. You're getting colder. Repent means you turn around and say, Lord, I want to get back close to that fire again. I want to have the burning, consuming, passionate love for you that I used to have. And how do we regain that love? Well, the Lord says, repent and do the deeds as you did at first. It's that simple. Return to what you did do. 
But what does that look like? Can anyone remember? Do you remember how you were so excited about sharing the gospel with other people? I remember the first thing I wanted to do was tell everyone. Go back and start doing it again. Do you remember when you were first saved how you wanted to study the word? You had a hunger for it. It was a burning desire. You wanted to read the love letter that the Lord had sent you. Do you remember how you used to pray? Go back and repeat. As someone would say, move your love from the mind to the heart. Jesus is saying, listen church, Ephesians, you have a problem. (coughs) You have a problem, you've left your first love. Go back to it, go and get it. Remember how it was. Repent and begin to repeat. Because if you don't, if you don't do this, Ephesians, there's going to be a consequence. What's the consequence? The end of verse 5. If you don't repent, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Or else I am coming to you. I can remember when my mum used to say, clean up your room or else. I wonder if anyone else says that here today still. Well, the the or else for me was that, well, there was no or else. Mum couldn't take it any further. I rarely rarely suffered the or else's of my mum. But in verse 5, let me tell you, the or else comes from who? The risen Lord. Jesus Christ, and he keeps his promises. And he says, repent or else I am coming. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, repent and do the deed you did at first or else. Now, it's very important you understand that all the you's in this verse are singular. This is where I'm trying to get across to you that this is about you and me. I am coming to you, singular, and will remove your singular lampstand out of its place unless you, singular, repent. It's for all of us. What does it mean to remove your lampstand? I don't have a lampstand in my place. No one up here. What does it mean? Does it mean that if you don't repent or remember and return that you'll lose your salvation? No, it doesn't. Jesus says in John chapter 10 verse 26, But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So if you are one of Jesus Christ's sheep, he has given you eternal life and no one can snatch you out of your hand. That's not what it means that the Lord's lampstand will be removed. But the Lord does say, I'm going to take your lampstand, I'm going to remove it. I'm going to take it from where I am walking amongst them. Remember back in chapter 1 verse 20, It says that the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And so this lampstand represents the church. 
But more importantly, the lampstand represents you and I. Because we are the church. And the lampstand is also just not a lampstand. What's the point of having a lampstand if it's not lit? You see, the, I, I believe the idea that Jesus Christ is showing is not just a golden lampstand that's just sitting there, it's burning. Otherwise it's just a stand. The lampstand is the light of the church to the surrounding peoples. The light that is shining. Matthew 5:14 and 16 says, You are the light of the world. That's, that's us. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We are the light of the world from the Lord's own lips. And we are to let that light shine out, not put it under a bushel, but to shine it out in such a way that we don't get the glory, but the Lord gets the glory. And if our lampstand is taken away, we lose that light. Because we've lost our first love and we haven't repented of it. I liken it to God taking us, uh, someone whose lampstand is taken away, that God takes them and sets them on a shelf and says, I can't use you anymore because you've lost your first love. There are churches and congregations who are still meeting year after year, Sunday after Sunday, doing religious things, singing hymns, perhaps doing good works in the community, but there's no spiritual impact. There's no change in people's lives. There's no releasing them from their sins. Their light has failed. But remember, I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. There is a way back. The Lord has given you a way back. And then the Lord says in verse 7, he says, Take special note of this. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. As I said earlier, this phrase occurs in each of the seven letters. It stresses a continual activity of the Spirit and is a loud call to get our attention. Now the Lord has used this same saying uh, when he was here on this earth. He said, Back in Mark chapter 4 verse 9 he told the parable of the soils and he said he who has an ear or he who has ears to hear let him hear. In that verse if you went there you'd see that he was talking to a lot of people. All those Jews are plural. All you who have an ear let, let, you, let him hear this parable and make sure you listen. But here in the letter to the churches of Revelation it's very personal because it's singular again. It's a personal challenge to you and to me. In each letter, Christ is speaking, but we're told what the Spirit says. And so he who has ears, and you've got two of them too, believe it or not, two ears. He who has two ears, let him hear what the Spirit says. Are you willing to listen to the voice of the Spirit of God? Do you have an ear to what God is saying to this church? Do we respond with obedience to the word that is given us? Do we have ears to hear? I am coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. And what are we repenting from? From the loss of our first love. Remember your first love. Repent and repeat. 
And if you don't, there are consequences. But then he has, the Lord has a message, the second part of verse 7. And this message again is at the end of each verse, each uh, church's uh, review. Then we have a message to him who overcomes. Look at the end of verse 7. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. It's an encouragement to, to you all, to us all. But to understand exactly what John means by overcoming, whether it means overcoming what he just said, we need to have a look at, go back to 1 John chapter 5, because this word overcome is a Johnism. John loves using this word overcome. So let's have a look at John chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, and we'll see what John means when he says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. Because it could sound like that we do something to, to help with our salvation by overcoming. Look what John thinks. 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one that overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. To him who overcomes, as far as John is concerned, refers to those who have accepted Jesus Christ and is indeed a born-again believer. To him who overcomes, or born again, to him who is born again, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Do you remember the tree of life in the Garden of Eden? Same tree. God said when he made the garden, he said, you can eat of all these trees, including the tree of life. You can eat of it. And you know that there was one tree that he was told, they were told not to eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But when they ate of that tree, sin entered the human race because of the disobedience to God. God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden simply for the reason that they should not ever go back and eat, the tree of, eat from the tree of life. In fact, the Lord put cherubim with flaming swords to guard the way back into the garden so that Adam and Eve could never again taste of the tree of life. There's no going back for Adam to the tree of life. There's no going back for us to the tree of life. Ever since Genesis chapter 3, we have been exiled and banned from the tree of life. But the good news is as over again, uh, born again believers, as overcomers, we're going to see it again. We're going to taste of it again. It's going to be glorious when we get to chapters 20 and 21, if the Lord hasn't come already. Because we're going to see that in heaven there's going to be this tree of life and our Lord is going to say, come on, welcome back to the tree of life. Partake of it with it. As we come to the end, I just want to put a, a question to you. Is it possible 
as you search your heart, is it possible that right at this moment that your life is very full of, of activity but you're on the verge of forsaking your first love? Is it possible in your life? Because the only ones that really know is the Lord and you. It's between the Lord and you. And if it's possible, if it's at all possible, then you need to restore your love relationship with Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you need to remember from the height that you fell or have fallen. You need to repent of that, to turn around and then return to where you used to spend so much time with him, thinking with him and about him and for him. And then that restored love relationship will enable us to continue to be the light of the world. Because without that love relationship with Jesus Christ, our lamp will be taken away and will be, I believe, put on a shelf and the Lord says, I, I can't use you. We are to be the light of the world and if our light has been taken away, we're not the light of the world. We need to be a light that lifts Jesus Christ up. We need to get back to making the main thing the main thing. And then our prayer would be, may the, Lord, the world see that we're in love with Jesus Christ as a church and may godly activity flow from that love, not the other way around and therefore bring a blessing to all those who come near us. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. A word that we know came from the lips of the risen Lord. A word that has been revealed to us so wonderfully. And Lord, we now understand we can be doing all the right things, all the commendations you had for the people of Ephesus, for the born-again believers there, Lord. But they had left their first love. Lord, help us to search our hearts, to remember, to repent and to return. We ask, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, search our hearts, search uh, our minds, Lord, and on an individual basis, Lord, uh, help us bring to the surface what we are doing that we shouldn't be. And, Lord, I pray that as we do repent, that our light will continue to shine to the, to the world, that we individually be, be lights of the world, and that men would see our light, not for our glory, but for your glory. And I ask it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.